AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Got my PrevNAR 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk. Get vaccinated, but, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't give Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Hello Somebody, a production of the Black Effect Network on iHeartRadio. Before we begin, I want to give a big thank you to my team, the team that makes this show happen every week. Thank you, Grace and Cole for graphics, Pepper Chambers, the hot one for writing, Angelo Greco and Anna Mesa for social media, Tiffany Hale for everything, Erica Eklund for Patreon support and production by the folks at Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media. Also, I want to tell you about the special Hello Somebody family over on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash hello somebody, you can become a member and join us over there for special video content, ask me anything experiences, and all kinds of surprises. All the proceeds go to making this production happen every week, and we would love your support. So come on and join and become a Patreon family member. Free joy. (laughs) Senator Turner. It is such a joy to be with you. And no pun intended on the joy. (laughs) It is always, always, always such a pleasure, Senator Turner. I have missed you and your face since the campaign ended. And it's always always such a gift to be able to be in your virtual presence, at least. I appreciate that. And I miss you, too. I don't know if you realize in the moment how excited I was to meet you because I have been following (laughs) your work and your writing and you... I was fangirling. See, the, the oh, fangirl. Yes. I can't believe that. You know, if you're going to make a black girl blush. <laughs> <laughs> and we do blush just in case. They don't know. We do. We do. Um, I really have been always so impressed with not just your intellect, but the way you take complex topics and you break it down for people to really understand. So the body of work. And I remember as other people were running or just doing things, I would always say, Brianna, you guys know Brianna, Joy Gray. (laughs) She's the one we need. Um, Even on on the Sanders campaign, it's just kind of ironic. So you and I got a chance to work together for like a year and a half on the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign. And I think several people were kind of thinking the same way, just really 
very impressed with you. I know other people have reached out to you from the campaign and it was just one of the highlights of being on that campaign was being able to work with you and knowing that you were going to be the spokeswoman for what we were doing. It was kind of enormous shoes to fill because even if I was spokeswoman in name, in effect, you were such a visible part of the campaign and such a visible part of the movement stretching back you know, to 2016 that the the model that you set and the way that you are able to inspire crowds and the energy that you're able to bring so consistency consistently rather on the campaign trail despite what a slog it can be is really inspiring and I think it you know from my perspective it seems to come from a genuine fire in your belly and a genuine commitment to the issues that we were talking about and people can feel that people could feel that authenticity so even when I was feeling down or tired having the pleasure, the honor to be able to sit in an audience when you gave remarks was restorative in a way that I will always treasure. And I'm very excited to continue to see you inspire people in many different capacities going forward. Well, thank you very much for that. I remember many a day, as I'm sure you do, I really made it my business to come up to the eighth floor and try my best to make people feel like they were appreciated. And I walked from pod to pod, from team to team, and yeah, I, you did. And I know for some people, because <laughs> a younger generation, like for me being a, a Gen Xer, I had the benefit of a Southern grandmother. Mm. And so I was taught when you walk into a room, say hello. You know, the person <laughs> who walks in the room, it's your obligation. And so sometimes it's hard for me to relate to a newer generation who might not have had the same blessing that I had to have a Southern grandmother who taught me those kinds of things. And I imparted those lessons to my millennial son. And so he mm. does not call adults. I mean, he's an adult now too, don't get me wrong, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm always mama. But he, he doesn't call people of a certain age by their first name. So unlike right. many of his peers, he was raised by me. And so I took my grandmother's Southern tradition and I passed it out. And I bring it up in reference to our work and us being together and us and even our other colleagues on the campaign and me coming upstairs to say hello. You know, I was always taught to make people feel valued as much as you can. And especially if you yeah. have a certain level of power yeah. that to whom much is given, much is required. Right. Well, I do have one Southern grandmother who passed before I was born, but I also have a grandmother from Cleveland, yes. as you know. Yes. <laughs> and that's the grandmother, I guess. I learned that same lesson from, let me tell you, the other day I went to invite one of my law professors on um, my podcast, Bad Faith. And I, he says, Brown, you've got to stop calling me professor such and such. And I said, okay. I put like, I don't see myself calling him John. And now I just don't address the emails. <laughs> so I'm just like, good morning. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> Greetings. <laughs> I know the feeling when I came full circle, um, I attended a community college first, a Cuyahoga Community College to be exact. And once I became a peer, you know, became a, a professor, a peer of my professors who taught me, they they too, like, call me by my first name. Why you keep calling me Dr. So-and-so? So I was like, no, I can't do it. My grandmother will come back from the grave. She will haunt me. I can't right. do it. You. I, I, I cannot do it. I cannot do it. It's just, if you ask me to do that, you're just going to find me not saying not, your not, name not. I, I want to get back just a little bit I was trying to go somewhere I want people to know that with talking about <laughs> you know the greeting and to whom much is given much is required and coming upstairs going out of my way I mean there was a point in time as you know where I was rarely on campus anymore because I was just traveling right on my to-do list was if I am there that first day that I'm there to come upstairs and say hello to people and I, I know I was about to talk about generations, have nothing but love for millennials, but there are some things, some traditions that are not necessarily passed down. And it was a pet peeve of mine, as you know, uh, mm. for people not to say hello to people. And you remember Erica was at that front desk. Yes. 
Yes. And when she told me, people were just walking in, not saying hello. I'm like, oh, no, no, y'all. No, oh, no. People going to say hello. And you remember at the staff meetings, I would, you know, some people in there were maybe young enough to be my children. And some people were, they were too old to be my my children. But I went in there with mama mode all the way because you can't mess with black mama mode. Black mama mode rules <laughs> no matter what age, baby. <laughs> don't, don't mess with a black mama. Part of it, I think, is a culture that you set at any kind of organization. I remember when I joined the campaign, I don't know if it's the nature of campaigns because this is the only one I've ever worked on mm-hmm. or what, there was something to the cumulative nature of how staffing happened. So, yes. you know, on my first day, you know, I walk in, in, I guess like early April and there's a smattering of tables, helter skelter in a big open space. And it's not clear who's who and where I'm supposed to sit or what's going on. And I just kind of plop down at a desk with my own personal laptop and a notepad. Yeah. And you know, it grew very quickly and more and more people came flooding in the room. And I understand that there are some kind of like organizational constraints to making a lot of pop and circumstance every day for every mm-hmm. new flood of person. Yeah. But also at, at certain key points, I think there could have been more of a culture of us all communicating because, you know, it took me some time to realize all of the things that were happening in that room and on the campaign and the ways that we could have all supported each other potentially better and had a little bit more synergy. And I don't mean to be Monday morning quarterbacking, but it is, it is a lesson that I would think is important to learn and which I definitely will take with me to whatever comes next down this pike of life. (laughs) And speaking of what's coming next, I know I totally agree with you that that cultures have to be created. They don't just have to be. Right. And I tried my best at least to to bring a culture of camaraderie and that everybody is important, whether you got a special title or not. You right. you're, you're an important part of this process. You matter. You know? Right. And you got the best out of people. It, yeah. it it pays dividends. Not that that's why we're doing it, but like yeah. people were excited to be around you. People were excited to work with you. People didn't want to disappoint you. Um, people wanted to give you good work product. And that's that's what it means to be a good manager. And I think good management skills and emotional intelligence, generally speaking, are really undervalued. Yes. I, you know, I have, a, you know, I came down a, from a pretty kind of rigorous academic background and everyone's always talking about how smart everybody is. But you end up with a bunch of folks sometimes <laughs> who are not that pleasant to be around because <laughs> they don't have very high emotional intelligence, which is just as value as other kinds of, you know, as I as IQ, you know, e- and when you're talking so. about, I I would say yes, yeah. even more I mean, so. to me it, anyway, I, I, yeah. especially when you're in a management capacity and a leadership capacity. I think too often that's not valued in spaces, but I, it, it was an enormous benefit to us in the campaign to have you there. Oh, thank you, Bridger. And I feel the same way about you. There's a warmness about you. You do light up a room and you have that personality. You don't even have to say a word. It's just how you, it's, it's your affect. I mean, you really do. <laughs> so and, sweet. Uh, no, it's, it's true. I don't say this about everybody. It's absolutely true. And I was always proud to make it my business to come and check on you. Like, what's going on? You okay? You know, we won't tell all the family secrets, but let's just say (laughs) no. So speaking of degrees and accomplishments, walk us through your education. And what did Mm. Bree Joy really want to be when she grew up? (laughs) Um, Famously in preschool, I said I wanted to be a uh, ballerina and a psychologist. I'm actually in my childhood bedroom. Well, not my childhood bedroom, but my bedroom, my mom's house. And I see a preschool drawing on the wall, a portrait I did of her, of my mom saying that her job is soon to be a psychologist because she was in her PhD program at the time. Yeah. Uh, and so I want to do what my mom did and also have a little glam, I guess. <laughs> Nothing wrong <laughs> um, with then, that. <laughs> by the time I got older, um, I it became clear that I, I had kind of strong writing skills and I liked to argue. And, you know, everyone tells little kids who like to argue that they should be lawyers. Yes. And I, I went to college not really knowing. I majored in history of science and history of art and architecture. And again, I liked writing. I thought I might do a PhD and be an academic. But all everyone around me seemed to be going to professional school. And Harvard is one of those schools that really kind of funnels you down a professional track, whether or not it's best for you. Yes. And so, you know, my friends were going to business school or law school or med school. So I figured I'd apply to law school and see what happened. And that's kind of how I ended up there. Um, and I won't say that I regret it because I don't think I would be where I am today without having had that experience. And it offered a lot in the way of a political education for me. But the job that I got afterward was not at all fulfilling to me. And I didn't find that it challenged me and it enabled me to be a thinker in the way that I wanted to. And so I started freelancing on the side around 
2017 Uh um, because I was so frustrated in 2016 with the narratives that came out of the Bernie Sanders campaign and the idea that there weren't women and people of color that supported Bernie Sanders when the majority of both women and people of color under 30, which I was, you know, 31 at the time, did support Bernie Sanders. And so I started writing to push back against some of that mythology. And I think it really took off because there were so many people that felt the same way. Six months or so later, I was so grateful to get a job at The Intercept. And that's how we ended up meeting. Yes. And through some alchemy that I still don't understand, I got tapped, you know, about a year after that to come and join the Bernie Sanders campaign. And it was an honor of a lifetime. It was one of the best decisions that campaign has ever made. Now, for a little bit. For a period of time in your life, you worked for corp- in corporate America. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I worked as a lawyer uh, at a law firm for, I think, six six years. I did one year federal clerkship in the Eastern District of New York and then went to a big law firm for a little less than two years. It was not a pleasant experience, yeah. um, mostly because I graduated in the wake of the recession. So the expectation that I had going into law school that you could just do this for a few years, earn some money, get some bonuses, pay off your loans, and then move on to something you really wanted to do collapsed. Um, you know, the, the super large bonuses that existed before didn't really exist. And it became clear that I was going to have to do this for like a decade, which was a daunting prospect. You know, I just spent my twenties in law school and now I was going to be no close to 40 before I would have to reinvent myself in a new career. And it was very demoralizing. So I moved to a smaller firm um, with the hopes that I would be able to get more interesting work and also have a little bit more time to explore other kinds of projects. Yeah, I did have more time. I'm really grateful that I did do that because ultimately that's how I was able to basically have this secret life freelancing that my job didn't know about (laughs) at the time. I was, you know, staying late, work from eight to midnight on articles at work, or I would catch up on work because I was working on articles during my lunch break, trying to make a deadline. And it was all under the radar. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to do that if I were still in big law. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. 
if you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Did the writing, was it annoying at your soul? I would call it soul, spirit, something that you thought about all the time, incessantly, you you couldn't get writing out of your... Yeah, well, it was... I was arguing with people, you know, it, I, yes. I felt very much a fish out of water. I was in this law firm. It was a very small firm. There were only 12 attorneys. And before 2016, I thought we were all pretty much ideologically aligned. We were all, you know, Democrats living in New York, liberals who went to Northeastern colleges. And I thought we were all kind of, I just presumed we were all kind of the same. And then when Bernie Sanders emerged as a really viable political candidate, there was so much disinterest or scoffing or presumption that a better world wasn't possible, it really highlighted the extent to which I was part of a different thing and that that thing was a movement that needed to be fed and and that I, I wanted to be a part of in a more meaningful way. I started using Twitter around that time. And I, I you are one of the account. best at Twitter, baby. <laughs> them, them, those lawyer skills, skills of argument come in handy. You slice and dice them. Sometimes you do it at, when people don't know they've been cut. And other times you go straight at the jugular. I'm coming for you. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing. I, I know. Look, I come to this as someone who just three years ago or so was a 200 follower account. I didn't have, I, I was just online like everybody else anonymously, Bree Bree Joy. I didn't use my real name because I, I wasn't trying to be public. It, just tangling with people and tangling sometimes with high profile people and the same people who I find to be kind yeah. of, the they weren't very chair. nice to me then and they're not very yeah. nice to me no. now. You know, sometimes they will accuse me of dogpiling them or like being unfair to them because I have a large follower account now. And I'm like, well, you treated me very unkindly when That's I right. had 200 followers, ma'am. You know, I, and it's not that I ever, you know, trying to be unkind. I, I try to be productive online. But what I found was it was frustrating making the same arguments over and over and over again. And I thought, you know, well, maybe if I just write this out one good time, you know, maybe if I just write the one good article and everyone can share it and everyone can benefit from what is really work that is getting done on Twitter. You know, people are working through arguments in a way that I think is meaningful that folks don't appreciate. And when I was a writer, when I was writing for The Intercept, I often found that I could just kind of mine my tweet threads <laughs> for article ideas. Like my tweet threads would be natural outlines yes. and I could build out from there into pieces. And people are doing a lot of intellectual work, I think. Not everybody, but there was intellectual work getting done on Twitter that I realized I could translate into something that was a little bit more lasting. I, I appreciate that. I've, I haven't written very much since the campaign ended, but I'm trying to get back into it. It, now. Will, it will come back. It's, it's always <laughs> with you. So you mentioned being treated unkind on Twitter and social media in particular, but Twitter, I have found that I don't know if you would agree with this to be the most vicious platform of them all. Mm. Not the Twitter itself, but the people. Let's be very clear because Twitter, sure. social media can be used as a, as a tool for good or as a tool for uh, mischief or evil. So you certainly have had your share. I have, you know, one of my dear friends, Jennifer Farmer, writes a lot about how black women are mistreated on social media and the impact that that has a ripple effect. And it's not that we can't be disagreed with. We're not talking about disagreements on the sky is blue and you say it's green or <laughs> I like sweet potato pie. You like pumpkin pie or I believe that we should cancel all student debt and you do not. We're not talking about that. But when they 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 cut us quick at our soul is is it's not an intellectual argument they want to have with us. I don't have to agree with a person's political ideology to know when somebody has gone too far. Right. But it's allowed in the blue checkmark world for women like you, because we're, we are on the progressive left. We are leftist black women in all the right. boldness to be uh, maligned, either our looks or our character right. or our intellect. And most of those folks don't say a mumbling word. Right. Um, yeah, it's frustrating because, you know, 
I, I have seen people in my mentions in defense of me say things about other black women who I disagree with politically that I have corrected, right? Yeah. I might have my political disagreements with, say, Azralina Maxwell or Simone Sanders, but I think that they are beautiful. Right. <laughs> I think that Zerlina's hair game, you know, that Afro on TV hair game is like pretty oh, much unmatched. <laughs> like, you know, that's that is not my qualm with her. And I don't I would never want anybody try, thinking that it was serving me to demean them in that way or particularly to demean their blackness Agreed. or their womanness. Right. Like that's not the issue or their agency um, or their agency. Right. Like they believe what they believe. I believe something different. But. It is frustrating, especially when there there does seem to be a real kind of club. And I experienced this from a media perspective as a member of the media, um, where it does feel like there is a a club of black journalists in particular who do have each other's backs and who signal boost each other and who care very deeply about racism in certain contexts and spend a lot of time writing about racism but are, I think, really notably silent when that racism is directed toward women like us who don't share their political views. That's right. And when we're talking about not sharing their political views, we're not talking about race. We're not talking about these big ticket items. I mean, ultimately, I think, and we talk about this on our podcast a lot, you know, trying to get to the, the bottom of what is the dividing line between people who identify as leftist and people who identify as liberal. And I don't think that it's that we, have different values. And I think that we have a different belief in what is possible. That's right. Um, so it's, it's weird to even say that we disagree. It's not that we disagree, but we feel empowered to push for a little bit more than they think is possible. That's right. And so given that we have such a, so much alignment, it is, it's frustrating. It's hurtful. Um, when I have, you know, a prominent black journalist, you know, attacking me in defense, you know, of a prominent white journalist, because they're friends and there's absolute silence when someone photoshops me in, you know, as a McDonald's worker, hashtag essential workers, as, yeah. you know, um, a sanitation worker, you know, the sanitation workers being, frankly, heroes in terms of the, yes, you know, black are. equality struggle, in the civil rights movement. That's right. Or, you know, photoshopping us as diamond and silk as though fighting for Medicare for all and cancellation of student debt and canceling a medical debt and, you know, you need labor protections the way we were doing on the Bernie Sanders campaign is at all equivalent to supporting Donald Trump. Right. Yeah, it's, like, it's so mm -hmm. disingenuous. It's so hurtful and it's so ugly and rooted in misogynoir. And the fact that you wouldn't even want to step in to say, hey, I disagree with these women, but like this is inappropriate. Prominent people, that's right. you know, prominent actors and movie yeah. stars and MSNBC hosts. Silent. You know, or participate. Or participate. Yeah, no, I <laughs> right? I totally agree with that. And you and I can feel that. I certainly believe, I mean, I don't have any data or numbers to back it up, that we suffered a lot, you know, publicly at the hands of, of, of people like that who didn't have the courage to say, hey, I might not agree with this or that, but don't attack her this way. Don't attack her at all. You know, let's just go on and have a conversation. You agree. I agree. Disagree. Whatever the, the, the matter at hand may be. But no, they absolutely said nothing. And you're right. Did participate in the activity. When you and the diamond and silk thing gets to me, too, because although you're right, it's not equivalent because diamond and silk. I might not agree with what they do or who they endorse, who they support. But I also believe that that's a slap in the face to diamond and silk because diamond right. and silk have a right to have their agency. I might not agree with it. So even for sure. them to do that, they did me like that. I mean, they would do us all kinds of ways. That's an insult to them too. And it's the same thing that I also, uh, Di Diamond and Silk. So let's talk about Diamond and Silk and, and, sure. and what they do. They're prominent supporters of President Don Donald J. Trump. They're uh, right. black women on the Republican side and they have their own show Maybe a YouTube, I think it's yeah. online based, but they've been elevated by Republicans because, you know, they're, they're not a ton of black Republicans. Right. And so there is this yeah. kind of tokenism that happens. And I think fundamentally that's part of the argument that they're making about us, that yes. somehow the left is white and we are exploiting an opening as black people to be kind of avatars for these white leftists, which one deeply mischaracterizes the racial breakdown of Bernie's movement. You and I both know you know, more black people gave 
money in the last political cycle than ever in American history. And most of that money went to Bernie Sanders. That's exactly that Bernie right. Sanders was consistently number two with black voters throughout the race. And in February was number one with black voters, yeah. a fact that was never circulated in the mainstream media, no. um, that the majority of every demographic under 40 <laughs> voted for Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. that he overwhelmingly won with Latino voters capturing 70% of the Latino vote in Nevada, something that was completely erased from the record because apparently Brown votes don't just don't 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 ma- count. Yeah, don't count. <laughs> and don't forget, Essence magazine did a poll, and I think it was uh, black women eighteen to I think it was twenty seven. I'm just going. The majority of them <laughs> supported, you know, our issues supported. Of course. Senator Sam- I mean, it, it was course. no surprise to us. Yeah. Trying to insult us by comparing us to Diamond and Silk, but also insulting Diamond and Silk too at the same time. Right. It's the same thing that Omarosa went through as well. Yes. Uh, President, yeah. it was all right for President Trump to call her a dog. Right. Not many black people or so called uh, the white people who want to stand up and speak up for black women said yeah. nair word maybe maybe yeah. I, I don't want to assume that none but it wasn't to the level where people understood that this is not not all right but when president trump starts to attack other people that they lean to more that they respect more that they think is worthy so they're going to stand up for them they yeah. jump up and, and they're in the fight right people need to ask themselves the question what aspect of this person am i criticizing right like yes. so diamond and silk say a million and one things that I find to be abhorrent and absurd. Very much and so. It is completely legitimate. And in fact, we should be pushing back on all of the nonsense that comes out of their mouths. But the way that they analogize us, the choice to take their hair and put it on our hair, yeah. it was clear that they what they're making fun of is the idea of hairstyles that are associated with Black women, uh, hairstyles that are associated with Black women perhaps in a certain income class, right? Like the idea of like wearing hair extensions or added hair, which is so stigmatized and made fun of often by people who are non-black. Like, and I'm not here for that. Like my issue with diamond and silk is not their hairstyle. That's exactly right. Like I have plenty of people in my family I make similar aesthetic choices as Diamond and Silk. And I'm not here to make fun of any aspect of that. That is not my issue with them. And the fact that you think I'm demeaned and that you're demeaned, Senator Turner, because they like photoshopped a a wig on us. Right. People are really telling on themselves. And that black women, uh, one black woman in particular that I don't want to like give air to, but who is a famous person and an actress was the one circulating that image with such glee. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's frustrating. It's disappointing. So. It, it, it really is. And I'm, I'm glad we're having this kind of conversation. And that wasn't at the hand yeah. of Trump Trumpers. You, you know, they right. were Trumpsters. These were. That's the thing. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Take <laughs> no, it from there. I'm sorry. I don't want to get like, because the yeah. things, Senator, that I've been seeing people say about you for a long time, the most vile, wretched people come in my mentions every day and say, why aren't you talking about Trump? Why are you talking about Trump? I could ask you, why are my, is all the racism in my mention from liberals? Hillary voters, Joe Biden voters, weirdly Kamala Harris voters. Yes. The K-Hive is the worst. Yes. You know, saying the most vile, specifically racist things about the two of us. The whole idea of a donut emoji. You know, there's so, I, I hate to like be so regressive and be talking about 2016 and stuff, but this stuff is still matters because yeah. you have prominent Democrats continuing to call these people friends um, extend olive branches to people who have participated in all of this online harassment. And the whole idea of a donut emoji, black, a chocolate, chocolate donut emoji, chocolate. Yeah, thank you, chocolate. <laughs> was created as a way to antagonize and undermine you. Yes. And they talk about Rose Twitter. A rose is a symbol of democratic socialism and solidarity and unity. A rose is a rose. The donut emoji is literally a symbol that's born out of anti-black woman hatred. And created by uh, neoliberals. And just to give some context to that uh, very quickly is when I was president of our revolution, we decided to deliver the people's agenda, the people's platform Mm. to the DNC. That's that's all we were doing. And when we got there, we were greeted. They, They had barricades up. They had security guards out. 
And I'm a member of the DNC. And it was, when I tell you it was peaceful, it was about 60 people and everybody was just leaving. You would have thought we were on a leisurely walk and not, but for the boxes. <laughs> you would have just thought, oh, a whole bunch of people just walking together. You know, everybody was of the spirit of, hey, we just want to deliver the, the, the people's agenda. We had just done a big uh, press conference and had Congress members with us there. You know, like Congressman Ro Khanna, I think Congresswoman mm-hmm. uh, Jayapal may have been there talking about the people agenda. The director at the time, Shannon Jackson, had pre-called Brejoy, the DNC, to let them know, hey, we're going to come on this day. This is what we're going to do. It was not even a surprise. Mm-hmm. And how they greet us with barricades up and, uh, and, and security guards outside. And for God's sake, I'm a member. I know people don't believe I am a member of the DNC. They would not let us. We were not even good enough to stand on their stairs. And instead of them taking this and saying, thank you so much, and we agree with many of the points or all of them or whatever, they just treated us like we were parasites, that we were a problem. Talking about canceling student debt and Medicare for those little things that just things like that and standing up for people. And they brought out donuts (laughs) and water to appease us. And it angered me so. And I said, you know what? We will not be seduced by donuts and water. You know what? Because we came here for a purpose and with an agenda that will lift people. We're not going to be seduced by donuts and water. And they took that and the rest is his. You you laid out the the history. Yeah. I, I I like bringing that up because I, people don't know that. And I think that I think it's probably true that there are some people who um, naively put the donut emoji in their profiles and don't even know what it means. I think yeah. that that's probably the case, and I think that those people should know what 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 they're subscribing to, the kind of ideology that they're subscribing to, and the kind of people they're throwing their lot in with, because. I don't think the average person is like that for all that we're talking about internet hate and and Twitter antagonism. You know, people are always like, Oh, Brianna, how do you do it? Your mentions. Honestly, my experience on Twitter is on the whole positive Yeah, because I was able to connect with the community. You know, I was at that law firm struggling, (laughs) getting fights in the hallway, hiding in my office all day, only talking to the paralegals because I couldn't handle like getting into political conversations with my colleagues. And I found refuge online and I continue to get a lot of support, especially during COVID when we're all kept apart. I find a lot of solidarity and a lot of support with like-minded people that I've met through the internet and being on the campaign and being able to meet a lot of those people in person. Last time I saw you, Senator, we Mm. were in South Carolina. Last time I was with you in person and it was a hard night. And after you gave your remarks, I remember milling around in the room. And meeting a bunch of people who it turns out I had been friends with for years online and everyone looks so different than you thought they looked and they're different races and they've got green hair and they're differently abled. And it's like so nice to see this like colorful cohort of people. And, you know, it was it was a difficult night, but it was also one of my fondest memories. And it's a reminder to me that the loudest voices are definitely in a minority when Mm -hmm. it comes to all the negativity and that without the ability to go online and to do grassroots organizing and to reach the people directly through all of these electronic means. I don't know that Bernie ever would have been able to get as much traction. There's so much hostility from the mainstream media to be able to have these kinds of podcasts and to reach people directly. It's, it's a real incredible gift. And I, I want to say my appreciation to the people who are subscribing to your show and listening to your show as much as I give airtime to the people who are you know, a thorn in my side. Yes, no, you're absolutely right, which is a good pivot point for us. AT&T Connects, an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. 
It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We didn't get a chance to talk a whole lot about the island of misfit black girls, but mm. we, we are on that island. And yes. uh, I, I believe that Harriet Tubman is on that island and Sojourner Truth <laughs> and, and, and Congresswoman Barbara Jordan and Shirley Smith and my grandmama and my mama mm. is on that and some aunties. And I'm sure who, who's, who's on that island for you, Bree Joy? Oh, let me us. tell you. You know, I, I have been a misfit. What was so kind of weirdly charming about that is <laughs> I come from a long line of nerds and misfits (laughs) my grandmother um uh was a teen mom she gave birth to my aunt when she was 16 my my mom when she was 17 you know in cleveland and you know a lot of people wrote her off she was always a you know kind of inquisitive was into mysticism and spirituality when i was growing up she was a buddhist and my mom tells stories about how she would have her and my, my aunt do transcendental meditation on the floor and how she had hanging plants and fish tanks and frog tanks and stuff like that growing up. She was a hippie, you know, this was in the six, she was a young mom in the sixties. And my mom ended up being like kind of a bookish skinny, they called her bones, you know, nerd under my grandmother's wing. And they were both weirdos, you know, and people, people thought of them, especially sometimes in the black community, there was a certain, you know, desire for them to conform in a certain way. And, And they just never did. And that was fine. I always understood myself to be a little out of step, but it never really bothered me. And to this day, you know, it's something that I I take pride in. I take pride in the diversity of what it can mean to be black. I take pride in the diversity of the black experience. I have so many beautiful black friends with so many diverse experiences and interests and passions. And the idea that someone would call out that uniqueness as a slight yeah. You know, it, it just it kind of makes me smile. How you know, did, the whole point of the the island of misfit toys that he's, you know, that was being evoked. How did that some people, Bree Joy, don't know how that how the island of misfit black girls yeah. came to be. So, you know, there there is a um, editor of The Root, uh, MSNBC correspondent named Jason Johnson, who went on a black news radio show that's very popular, Karen Hunter's show, and was talking about his frustrations with people on the left and characterized, uh, I think both you and I by name, uh, as belonging on the Island of Misfit Black Girls, saying that we were basically not representative of what Black female voters were interested in. 
the implication being that we were sequestered, separate, and apart, and shouldn't be held up as any kind of representative of a, a, a true movement or ideology or interest among Black women out there in the world for progressive values, which we all know is not actually true in the least. Okay. Um, and he got some backlash for it, and he's no longer the editor at The Root, political editor, and was suspended temporarily from MSNBC. He's back now and is climbing up the ranks and is regularly hosting AM Joy and some very prominent shows, which is frustrating. But at the end of the day, I think it really exposed more about him than it said anything about us. And I think turned a lot of people on to the kinds of behavior that are tolerated toward Black women among the very group that pretends to care that Black women's interests are their priorities when it's, you know, politically convenient for them to do so. If people want us to stop talking about these things, it would be helpful if there were consequences because I could leave it dead and gone in the past, but we're continuing to have conversations about how offensive and aggressive the left is. Anyway, Brie Joy, bad faith, bad faith. <laughs> that, that that podcast of yours is rip roaring. It's one of the fastest growing <laughs> podcasts in the country. How, how did you uh, come up with this, the partnership, and how do people find you to support you. I want people to subscribe to Patreon and support <laughs> Bad Faith. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. You know, after the campaign, I think like a lot of people, I wasn't sure what to do next or where I was going to go. I'm not someone who got into politics because I wanted a career in politics. I wanted to be a writer. I loved my job at The Intercept, best job I ever had. And when the Bernie campaign came and asked me to leave that job. I did it because I believed in Bernie Sanders yeah. and I believe I continue to believe in this movement. So I, I don't say this, you know, to critique anybody else. And I understand that, you know, sometimes to get political jobs and to stay, you, you know, in it, you got to like hold your tongue and play a certain kind of a game. But, you know, that wasn't my interest. Mm-hmm. So I was going to keep tweeting and I was going to keep saying what I believed and that foreclosed certain <laughs> Uh, you know, possibilities for me professionally. And I had no interest at all in going back to being um, a corporate lawyer. So, uh, you know, Virgil Texas of Chapel Trap House, which is the most popular um, podcast on the left, reached out to me over the summer and we started having conversations about just how we felt mm-hmm. and how we felt listless, what our um, kind of where we were emotionally in this moment. And he was looking for a place to be a little bit more candid, a little bit more emotionally forthcoming a little bit more sensitive Mm -hmm. than he is able to be on Chapo, which is a great show, but more kind of just funny and jokes and and fast paced and not really intimate. And I was looking for a place where I could be a little less formal than I obviously had to be in the concept of a campaign, but could still be funny and light and talk about entertainment and pop culture in addition to politics and bring kind of a left perspective to those issues. So we were not friends before that. We did not really know each other before that, but we have had such amazing chemistry. We've been able to have such amazing guests on between talking to your, your friend, Michael Rinder, Killer Mike, um, <laughs> yes. talking to, you know, Noam Chomsky, you know, talking to uh, Michael Moore, talking to Ice Cube. Um, there has been an enormous diversity of guests who I think are really happy to have a place where they can let their hair down and have a different kind of interview, uh, a kind of more intimate, loose, humorous, but deeply, deeply committed to left values and how we're going to get to the next step. It's very proactive. I'm interested in asking people what they can offer the audience that will enable us to move closer to this progressive ideal that we continue to fight for. And I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for the interest in the podcast and that people have continued to support it because you and I both know Independent left media is invaluable. It really is. Got to have those voices. So I want people to go and subscribe. Where do they go? Where where can they, they can get it wherever you get your podcast, correct? Right. So you can it's, listen to our free episodes yeah. on Thursdays. We, we release them um, wherever you get your podcasts or you can find them on Patreon. We also put clips up on our YouTube page, which I really encourage you to look at because a lot of people How do are, they get, are visual. What, what's the, um, do you have a... Um, for bad faith, I just Google bad faith podcast on okay, YouTube. And it'll come it'll come up. Yes, that's the simplest way to do it. Yeah. Um, but for Patreon, we also have premium episodes once a week on Tuesdays that you can find at patreon.com slash bad faith podcast. And you don't want to have miss it. you do not We have very miss intimate it. conversations over on the premium episodes. So I, I highly recommend them. I highly recommend them too. Free joy in our in our closing. You know, people are feeling really heavy right now. COVID, the yeah. political environment, everything. What words of encouragement would you have 
there are still things that can be done. There are still arrows in our quiver. I know that Bernie came to represent um, a figure that managed to unite so many parts of the left. Yes. And it took him, you know, a 40 year career to get to the point where he was able to fill that role. And I know it seems really daunting when we think of who can step in, who can be a lightning rod of sorts for the left in that same way. Who has the communication skills to talk to a broad-based community? You know, it, it can seem daunting, but, you know, when, I'm ta- when we talk to people like Sarah Nelson, um, president of the Flight Attendants Union, and we talk to people like Boots Riley, who's been, you know, a communist organizer in the Bay Area since he was a teenager, and they talk about how powerful labor is, how powerful it is to be able to grind economic gears to a halt to make demands of our leadership. And when you see the size of the squad doubling this year and you see the confluence of what electoral power and labor power and protest power can do, I just want people to continue to believe that there are fruits that solidarity can still bear. Come on. And to not do all this infighting, to continue to believe in each other. And in this time of crisis of unprecedented economic and health crisis, that we need to remain united, that there are a lot of people that are arguing hardcore on the media and in our Congress that we can't have better, that a better world isn't possible. But you and I both know it absolutely is. And we 100% can get there if we do it together. Hey, man, we are going to make it so there are fruits that solidarity (laughs) can bear. That's a word that (laughs) preach, as we were saying in the black church, that preaches. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Bree Joy, it has been a nothing but an immense pleasure to have you on, and I can't wait to have you on again. You are, when I say a bright star, uh, refreshing a voice in every single way, and, and no matter what you decide to do, you are going to bring the thunder, the lightning, and the rain for the people. You are a blessing to this movement and to humanity. Oh, well, I feel the same way about you, Senator. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be able to talk to you Thank and be, you. be friends with you. <laughs> Absolutely. Hello, Somebody is a production of iHeartRadio and the Black Effect Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk? Get vaccinated. But but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't give Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar 20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.